You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Today's show is also brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Scurvy Pete, Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, Blacktip, Matthew the Navigator, LeChuck, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. When Oruge and his heir Barbarossa captured two papal galleys off the coast of Italy, it created a stir in Christendom. This appeared to be a different breed of Barbary pirate. For years there had been small boats rowing out of Berber ports looking for incautious Italian ships, but to sail deep into Italian territorial waters, in sight of Elba, and to capture two well-armed ships, two ships that belonged to the Pope himself, well, that was something new. Were I writing a story, I would use this moment to tell you that the governments of Italy all jumped into action. All the former crusader kingdoms from Spain to France to Prussia would band together to fight this new menace to the south, but... That is not at all what happened. See, Europe had much bigger fish to fry than a few measly Moorish pirates. They were at war, as Europe tended to be nearly all the time here in the High Middle Ages. Now, this wasn't a world-shaking conflict. Armies were clashing and soldiers were being killed to further the aims of powerful men, but it wasn't the Thirty Years' War or even the Nine Years' War, and it certainly wasn't a revolutionary or Napoleonic war. They were fighting the Italian War, or one of the Italian Wars. They had a lot of these. Basically, for nearly a century, the Italian city-states, the Papal States, and the Republic of Venice contested and conspired and warred and assassinated their way to controlling lands and controlling properties that they had not previously held. Every once in a while, the Pope or some Duke or some Prince would beg the aid of Spain or France or England or Prussia or Bavaria or wherever, and their king would send troops into Italy. See, it was a good testing ground. It was a good training ground for new troops and new battlefield commanders. The Italian countryside was also flowering and provided ample opportunities for noblemen in command to cheat on their wives and cuckold the local gentry. Common soldiers also found women to keep them company, but usually far less willing. The Spanish or the French or whoever spent most of their time filling their own coffers with stolen gold and killing a few local militiamen. In a lot of ways, it actually looked very similar to later pirate raids, But whatever Italian authority that had initially invited that foreign army in to fight on their side 
always saw how politically abysmal it looked to have foreigners riding on his side, literally raping and pillaging other Italians. So invariably, that Italian nobleman would declare, Curses! We've been fooled! And then he would switch sides and fight against the army that he invited in. They were living out a romantic fantasy. They were playing chess with real people. And those people suffered. There is a reason that, in a couple of hundred years, the guillotine was so liberally applied. So those pirate raids from the Barbary Coast at first seemed like not that big a problem. More of the same, really. The Ottoman Empire was, in Hungary and Romania, actually fighting a real war of conquest, but the Moorish states were just starting to dip their toes into the seasonal conflicts that European lords were frequently engaging in. And those pirates were just that. They were pirates. Which actually brings up a question I want to explore. It's really almost an underlying question to our entire show, but it's particularly prescient here. It's, what is a pirate? It seems simple, but it's really, in this case, a difficult question to answer. When does a pirate cross that line into a privateer? When does a privateer cross the line into a legitimate naval unit? It's a question that hangs on international laws, and there weren't sufficient international laws governing this stuff in 1500. In reverse, it's a simple answer. A naval man or a privateer crosses that line into piracy when a monarch decides it's politically expedient to disavow any actions taken by them. Had Queen Elizabeth buckled under the Spanish pressure, she may have ordered Francis Drake strung up at the docks, and we wouldn't have a Sir Francis Drake, but a moderately notorious pirate, Francis the Dragon. But that's a one-sided, Anglo-centric view. Drake was a pirate in the eyes of Spain. And I would actually be curious to find out how he is seen, if he's talked about much at all, by the people of Mexico or Cuba or Panama or modern-day Spain. But keep that question in mind, what is a pirate? How do we choose to define them, especially in the West? And where do those lines between pirate and privateer lie? This is episode 76, The Brothers Barbarossa. The reason I bring up that question at all is, well, we've been trained to see pirates as sort of the good guys, you know, rogues and anti-heroes, Robin Hood, Han Solo types, and there are sometimes reasons to see them that way. But there are even more good reasons to see them as drunken, homeless, dirty, violent, rapacious, and greedy. However, that is often less the case with the Barbary pirates. At least in the West, they are typically portrayed one of two ways. In the old-fashioned view of European historians, they were violent, crazy-eyed, turban-wearing, Mohammedan maniacs killing and raping and taking slaves, and they were that. They were violent, they did wear turbans, and they did pray facing Mecca every day, and they did kill and rape and enslave, but then there is a revisionist view that portrays them as a bunch of young, idealistic freedom fighters struggling against the might of Spain, and that is also true. They were young, and they were fighting for their ideals. They were struggling against the might of Spain and, and really the whole of the Catholic world. But I don't want to portray them as a plucky band of freedom fighters, and I have to struggle with that, because I love stories about plucky bands of freedom fighters. 
what they were when we move past the prejudiced historians of old and the modern revisionists was really just a successful naval mercenary group. They worked directly for the highest echelons of the Ottoman Empire. They were soldiers in an imperial and holy war, which distinguishes them from pirates like Blackbeard and puts them closer to the camp of Drake. That imperial war in question was a war between, on one side, Spain and the Holy Roman Empire, and the Ottoman Empire on the other. It was, or eventually would be, almost a personal contest, almost a game of chess between Charles V and Suleiman the Magnificent. And here is a good place to rejoin our story in 1504. That game of chess was progressing pretty evenly at the moment. See, if you were to look at a map of the Mediterranean and the lands surrounding it, and imagine the borders of Ottoman, or at least of Islamic control, versus Catholic control, you can watch those borders shift almost evenly. I picture a line, maybe not exactly a straight line, crossing the Mediterranean Sea moving counterclockwise. At one point, the Caliphate of Cordoba controlled most of the Iberian Peninsula, and the Byzantine Empire controlled most of Anatolia, most of modern-day Turkey. But in the 1400s, that line shifted. Muslim Spain was pushed into Africa, and Byzantine Turkey was slowly consumed by the Ottomans. Then Greece fell into the hands of the Ottoman Sultan, and then the new nation of Spain started conquering and settling ports on the coast of Morocco and Algeria, pushing their winnings. And let me tell you this, it's basically useless to Google anything about Spain fighting Morocco and Tunisia in a world where soccer exists, especially in a World Cup year. But those initial Spanish conquests in North Africa were quick and relentless. They captured a number of strongholds on the African mainland and used them as ports for inland wars, but mostly to control the Mediterranean. They were able to take those ports with relative ease because, well, first of all, they were attacking independent caliphates. This wasn't the Ottoman Empire. The Ottoman Empire, who in another time may have given these independent caliphates aid, well, they were busy fighting another war. There was an internal struggle going on, but also a war with Venice. These days, the Venetian Republic tends to get sort of ignored in the bustle of European history, at least here in the U.S. it seems to. But at the time, they were a sovereign state for almost a millennium, and they were a powerful one in Europe. They inherited much of what had been Rome's cultural history and most of her wealth. The Venetian Republic commanded the Aegean and the Ionian seas for centuries, and much of the Mediterranean. They played a major role in the Crusades, and they fostered many of the greatest minds of the Italian Renaissance. They were also the lords of Greece, so they had problems with the Turks taking Greece over. Now, Venice was at war with basically everyone here in 1504. On one side, to the east, there were the Ottomans pushing in in Greece, and then on the other side, basically the rest of Europe. Spain, France, England, and most of the rest of Italy, including the Papal States, the Holy Roman Empire got in there, I mean, everyone. Remember last time when we talked about the Barbarossa brothers' patron, Cezad Korkut, the son of the Sultan, the prince of the Ottoman Empire? 
Well, when Hizir and Oruj Barbarossa attacked those papal galleys off the coast of Elba, that created real problems for him. You see, it was well known across the empire that he was a patron of the Barbarossas. They attacked two papal galleys, two ships from the papal states, and the empire was at war with Venice, an enemy of the papal states. Now, it's not like the Pope and the Ottoman Empire were allies, I mean, far from it, but it's typically seen as a foolish move to steal funds that would likely go to fight your enemies, especially while antagonizing that same force that was busy fighting your enemy. This was one of a long line of perceived, often incorrectly perceived, screw-ups that Korkut oversaw. Have you ever been in a situation at work or at school in which you have an idea, a good idea, but it gets totally shot down by your boss or your teacher, and then a few weeks later or maybe a few months later, that boss or that teacher announces their own spectacular idea and it's really just your idea? I encountered that in high school with the school paper. The editor and I clashed over a number of issues, but I was a demanding person who had a problem with authority, so I quit. But then, in the next issue, I saw nearly all of my suggestions that the editor had shot down implemented in the paper. Imagine a situation like that, only it's your father, not some teacher, not your boss, and it's international military policy, not a school newspaper. That was the situation that Korkut found himself in. After the Barbarossas attacked those galleys, and after Korkut had to suffer the political fallout, the Ottoman Empire ended their war with Venice and went to war with the Papal States. But this really only, at this point, affected Korkut. The brothers weren't too intertwined in politics, at least not yet. They were still just privateers and not beholden to the Ottoman Empire or their guidelines. At this point, they were working for the emir of Jerba, and the emir was far more concerned with Spain in his waters than with Italy. That's why, later in 1504, Aruj Barbarossa sailed out to capture yet another important ship. This time, in the waters southwest of Spain, they captured a Sicilian galley, the Cavalleria, carrying Spanish foot soldiers and knights to the tune of 440 men. That's 440 soldiers, plus Sicilian sailors, all of whom were now galley slaves. This action coincided well with the Ottoman Empire's policy concerning Spain. They had been focused on Venice after their conquest of Greece and the Aegean, but now that Spain was moving further and further south and east, they couldn't afford to ignore Spain any longer, or to leave the defense of Muslim shores in the hands of privateers. The Sultan sent the Admiral of the Mediterranean Ottoman fleet, which at the time was virtually the entire Ottoman fleet, a man named Kemal Rais West, to help defend Morocco and Tunisia and Algeria. Kemal Rais brought his nephew, a man who would go on to become a famed mapmaker named Ahmed Piri. Kemal's surname, Rais, is an Ottoman naming convention that we're going to run into quite a bit while we discuss these Barbary pirates. It's a declaration of his rank as captain. It's basically calling him Captain Kemal. Now, Kemal raided Spanish port cities all along the African coast. He didn't 
conquer them, but he did a fair amount of damage, very similar to how pirates in the 1700s would. He attacked naval squadrons on patrol out in the sea, and then he passed through the Pillars of Hercules and harassed the Atlantic coast of Iberia. This was all-out naval warfare, far beyond the privateering of the Barbarossa brothers. His presence made things a bit too tense in the western Mediterranean. Spain was sending more and more ships out to deal with Kemal and his fleet, so Baba Orush decided to turn away from privateering and went back to transporting refugees and smuggling. The Barbarossa brothers, though, were, after their two successful raids, beginning to gather followers, mostly the younger brother, Hizir. There was another Greek Ottoman sailor turned privateer who was close to Hizir. His name was Kurtuglu Muzleheden. Kurtuglu means son of the wolf. Now, he may actually have known the Barbarossas before he became a privateer, but we don't know much about his early life until he joined the privateer fleet. However, it was clear that he was his ears man more than anyone else's. It was probably around this time as well that the young Sephardi Jewish sailor named Sinan joined up with the Barbarossas. At the time, probably just as a crew member, not yet a commander, but he would have been in the mix. Then, the eldest of the Barbarossa brothers, Ishak, went to Jerba as well. He didn't, at first, engage in privateering. He managed things on the island. He basically ran the family business, which was privateering rather than pottery. But soon enough, he had turned to sailing as well. And then, there was that nephew of the Ottoman admiral, Ahmed Piri. He joined up with the fleet of the Barbarossas as well. These five young men, well... At least the four young men, perhaps excluding Sinan, who we aren't certain, had joined up at this point. But this group of privateers defined Ottoman naval strategy going forward, as well as Barbary piracy for decades to come. If one chose to do so, they could call this group the Young Turks. Now, they would be incorrect. None of them were actually Turkish, after all. Ishak, Oruj, and Hazir, the Barbarossas, were of Greek and Armenian heritage. Sinan was a Sephardi Jew from Spain, and Ahmed was Anatolian but of Greek lineage. But remember about a month ago we put out an episode called These New Turks? There was a Spanish governor that wrote about the Pacific pirates and called them the New Turks. That governor was actually referencing these pirates right here. Most importantly, Oruj, Hizir, Sinan, and Cortuglu. When most Spaniards thought about pirates, even after Francis Drake and Henry Morgan and all of the French privateers, they still thought about Turks. Not just the Barbarossas and their fleet. There were decades of Moorish Barbary corsairs to come. But this group of turbaned, Jewish, Muslim, scimitar-wielding pirates were the definitive image of pirates and piracy in Spain, even by 1680. Even moving forward, in a lot of Europe, even today, that remains the case. That fleet, the privateer fleet under Oruj Barbarossa, was the most attractive opportunity for any young Ottoman seafarer. Philip Gose writes in The History of Piracy, quote, Orush's sensational exploits attracted to him all the adventurers of the southern and eastern Mediterranean, as well as a large number of renegades from different countries. His appeal was as strong as that of Drake to the youth of Devon and Cornwall. 
Imitators also sprang up, and soon the Mediterranean was infested from end to end with the companies of freebooters. End quote. A year after the capture of the Cavalleria in 1505, Oruge Barbarossa led a fleet through the Strait of Gibraltar into the Atlantic Ocean. The other ships in the fleet were commanded by Ishak, Hizir, and Kartuglu, as well as perhaps Ahmed Piri and Sinon. That little fleet caused some amount of trouble along the coast, but they soon spotted a galleon sailing in from the Atlantic towards Spanish shores. The Spanish galleon had only recently been invented. It was a relatively new design, and it was a ship about which any pirate would be wary. However, Orouge thought this ship was worth trying for. The former Navy SEAL, Bennerson Little, writes in his Tactical History of Piracy how history's greatest pirates pillaged, plundered, and got away with it, quote, They hoisted their true colors, probably Tunisian, and the Islamic crescent created even more fear. Within 100 yards they opened fire, sending harquebus lead and arrows into the exposed crew. Confusion reigned as the bowsper of the Corsair galley slipped over the extended oars and pierced the outrigger. The Corsairs surged over the spur and aboard the prey vessel, their scimitars in hand, their voices shouting Allah and hurling war cries and promises of bloody slaughter. They gave no quarter to anyone. Both victor and victim were covered in blood as the naked blades rang against opposing arms and armor, as sharp steel carved flesh from bone and limb from body. The broad strokes of the Turkish scimitars cut easily, for their sharply curved blades were made for such cutting. End quote. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire. Enslaved Frederick Douglass risking his life for liberty. And about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today. And join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode. Where I'd like to tell you a story. If you want nightmares, you are in the right place. I couldn't sleep last night after listening. This podcast is genuinely scary. That's what people are saying about Frightful. And if you'd like a few nightmares of your own, then how about you step this way? Hi, I'm Peter Laws, and I'm an author, journalist, and the host of Frightful, the podcast that is giving folks the serious creeps. From spine-tingling tales of the paranormal and shocking true crime to disturbing cults, possessions, and the forgotten horrors of history... Frightful is the podcast that pulls you into the darkness with immersive music, sound effects, and storytelling that is designed with one thing in mind, to get under your skin. With new episodes every other Sunday, you'll have plenty to keep that heart rate high. The good news is it's available free wherever you get your podcasts. The bad news is that after listening to this show, you might just have to spend a few more cents on electricity. After all, you're going to be sleeping with the lights on. So search Frightful in your podcast apps and I will see you there in the dark.
And that brings up a point of interest here. These Barbary pirates had some of the best weapons in the world. Their guns were still lacking, but the Arabic and Berber bows were some of the best recurve bows in the world, and their swords were Damascus steel scimitars. That Spanish galleon, that impressive warship, eventually begged quarter from the privateers, and the survivors were captured and enslaved and made to work oars. That Spanish galleon held a new kind of plunder, though, something that none of the Barbary Corsairs had ever seen before. She was carrying a king's ransom in Spanish silver pieces of eight. It was a treasure galleon. They had almost accidentally happened across the treasure galleon, if we believe the Spanish. King Ferdinand, after this little event, decided it would be best to cut a deal with the pirates and privateers. He had much bigger problems elsewhere to deal with, mostly in Italy. So he paid off the Barbary Corsairs, Orouge and Hazir and all the rest, and he actually talked them into attacking his enemies, the Italians. They focused their attentions on the Italian ships for several years. They made a fortune attacking Sicily and Venice and any Italian ship that crossed their paths. And every time they successfully raided a town or a city or a ship, that brought them greater wealth and greater renown. But then in 1510, Spain started pushing her claims on the Berber coast. Kemal Reis had stopped the advance of the Spanish forces, but soon it became apparent that Spain was now going to be a threat to the pirates' home at Jerba. Ferdinand sent in a fleet that eclipsed anything the Ottomans possessed, mostly Spanish galleons, and that surpassed any ship that the Berbers or the Ottomans could float. That Spanish fleet took Bugia, Oran, and the city of Algiers. These were the three largest Mediterranean port cities in Algeria, and... Ferdinand consolidated his control of them with island fortresses that guarded any approach. The Algerian emir courted the Barbarossa brothers and their fleet to help him liberate his coast from King Ferdinand. Oruj and Hazir agreed, and they set sail from Jerba to do so. This was not privateering, this was not piracy, this was mercenary work for an emir of a, an independent caliphate. Their first attempt was to take that first city of Bougia in 1511. The Spanish, though, were ready. They fired volley after volley from their island fortress of heavy cannon fire at the incoming pirates. Before they even got in range, Orouge and Hazir were repelled. Orouge was seriously wounded in that barrage of cannon fire. His right arm was damaged by a cannonball and had to be amputated at sea. He was, when he returned to Jerba, given a prosthesis made of pure silver, which he regularly polished, according to legend, to reflect the sun and blind his enemies. And he was, after his new arm was put on, given a new nickname. He was already Baba, or Rouge, for his shepherding of the Muslim and Jewish exiles. He was Barbarossa for his fiery red beard. And now he was Gumus Kal, in Arabic, silver arm. The fleet returned to take the city in 1512, but once again to no avail. This campaign against Spain wasn't proceeding well, so they just decided to go capture some Spanish outposts elsewhere. They raided up and down the Andalusian coast of Spain in a brutal campaign. They would appear suddenly out of nowhere, seize a fishing village or a coastal town, and carry off all of the valuables and slaves in the town. 
These slaves captured on the Andalusian coast were not intended for the galleys, and they weren't to work the oars. They captured young men and women, as well as girls and boys, and they had the intention of selling them to the harem masters, everywhere from Morocco to Alexandria to Damascus. The men and boys were worth less in resale value in the Ottoman Empire than the women and girls, and their cargo space was limited on their galleys, so thousands of women were captured in those few months of raiding along the coast of Spain. Now, Oruge, the admiral of their pirate fleet, may not have been behind these raids. See, he was always more interested in politics than anything else. The interests of his family and the empire were always at the center of his mind. But his leadership against the Spanish fortresses along the Barbary coast had netted the pirates nothing. They had been failures, and they'd lost many men. So his younger brother, Hazir Barbarossa, well, Hazir was always more of a pirate and less of a politician. He was a loose cannon, a hothead. But he usually led the men into battle, and he always got results. He also made the men a lot of money. Spanish silver suddenly flowed into Jerba, into the pockets of all of the Barbary Corsairs, and it spent everywhere. It appears that Hazir was behind these raids on the coast of Spain while Oruge was recuperating from his wound. And Hazir's tactics were unpredictable. He would attack a village without warning and then back out to sea, and he would skip by leagues and leagues of coastline to attack an island hundreds of kilometers away. And sometimes he would occupy the castle on that island just for the purpose of sinking any Spanish ships that sailed by. When Spain finally got their act together and finally sent out some ships to capture him, Hazir disappeared. And then he would reappear, all his slaves sold off outside Genoa, where he would raid the estates of the aristocracy along the Riviera. And then, when the Genoese navy got their act together and sent a fleet out to capture Hazir and his men, well, the Barbary Corsairs captured 23 of their warships in under a month. He became a boogeyman to the Mediterranean coast of Europe. He could appear anywhere without warning and carry away your daughter and all of your money. But think about that for a moment. 23 of the best Genoese warships in their fleet in under a month. Put yourself in the shoes of a pirate who suddenly had dozens of ships under their command. Venetian galleys with Venetian flags and Venetian uniforms and Venetian guns. Genoese yachts and warships with Genoese flags and Genoese uniforms and Genoese guns, and at least one powerful Spanish galleon with Spanish flags and Spanish uniforms and Spanish guns. If you were a successful pirate with further larceny in mind, how would you utilize those resources? It's not a difficult equation, but they did have two problems. First, they didn't have enough men to man all of those vessels. So they recruited heavily from the Sephardi population of Jerba and Anatolia. If young Sinan had not yet joined the Barbary Corsairs, he did so here. The Jewish pirates that joined up with this fleet were a serious help to the Barbary Corsairs. Remember, most of the Barbary Corsair ships were those galleots. They were oar-powered vessels with a single sail. But these European Jews had knowledge of maps and charts and naval tools that the Barbary Corsairs didn't. Not only did they know how to sail better than the Berbers, who were used to their galleots, they also spoke fluent Spanish. They'd grown up speaking it in Spain. 
and they looked Spanish. At least they looked more European than the typical Ottoman Janissary or Moorish warrior. So after their brutal campaigns in Spain and Italy, the Barbarossas found themselves positioned to become the most powerful and influential naval force in the Mediterranean. Now I know that's a bold claim, but remember Spain, who was easily the most powerful navy in the world, was focusing most of their attention on the Western Hemisphere, the New World, the Americas. England and the Netherlands still didn't have much of a fleet to speak of, and frankly, neither did the Ottoman Empire. This fleet of privateers realized suddenly to itself that they may be the most powerful force out there. But they did have one other problem. They had all of those captured ships and guns. They were high-quality European guns, but they only had some powder and some shot for them, not really enough to last. And Zerba at the time didn't have the infrastructure to make gunpowder. So Arouge, who was interested not just in piracy, but also in building up his home, sent off to Greece and Anatolia for the necessary materials to build a gunpowder manufactory. With this new facility, with all of the funds they had from selling enslaved concubines, and with that ship full of Spanish silver, well, they had a near-endless supply of high-quality powder and shot. Now, this was important for their pirate fleet, but it also turned out that powder and shot in the Ottoman Empire made them a nice profit. So they had all of these new men, those Sephardi recruits, those Berber recruits, those Ottoman recruits. They had new ships to the tune of about 30 vessels, and they had all of the new weapons and a steady supply of gunpowder and shot. That gave the commander of the fleet, Oruge Barbarossa, the opportunity to return to the fray, to return to his war against Spain. This time, better prepared, their campaign went far better. They defeated a Spanish naval squadron out on the sea. They captured the galleons and the cannon in that squadron, and they even took four English vessels that were on their way through the Mediterranean to France. And I should mention that they weren't keeping all of the ships that they took. They were taking lots and lots of ships during this period. If they had taken every ship that they took, they would have had dozens of large ships and been in need of thousands of men to crew them. They did have maybe 2,000 sailors, but not nearly enough to sail all of the new vessels. However, the Ottoman Empire did have thousands of sailors, Muslim and Jewish sailors, so the Barbarossas sold their excess vessels to the Ottomans, as well as any slaves that they captured, and made a tidy profit off of that as well. That's why these Barbary Corsairs were perhaps luckier and perhaps smarter than later pirates. They not only captured money that they needed to live, but they went on raids that advanced themselves politically and financially. The Corsairs went on to capture Spanish-held forts at Churchill, Setua, and Gijel. These were three ports deep in Spanish territory. They established bases there, and even though the Spanish would eventually chase them out of the first two, Churchill and Setua, that dealt real blows to Spanish power in North Africa. Then, an emissary arrived at the Barbary fortress at Gijel from an Ottoman commander, and this is one of those moments that needs to be imagined. It needs to be visualized. At least, when I read about it, I see it vividly. 
Gigel lies on the coast of the Mediterranean. If you look up pictures of it, it looks sunny and warm. The waters that lap the shores of Gigel are clear blue-green. The coast is lined with beaches and date trees, and hovering over the city is the fortress that was inhabited by Orouge Barbarossa. That fortress was an old sandstone Berber fortification on cliffs that overlooked the sea and guarded a bay around which Gigel was situated. Inside, the walls of the fortress were lined by sumptuous tapestries, some of them of Ottoman or Berber origin, but many of them stolen from aristocratic estates in Spain and France and Italy. The floors were covered in Greek carpets, and the sounds of birds chirping and waves lapping and ships creaking filled the halls of the fortress. When that Ottoman emissary arrived in the central hall, there were probably four men there awaiting him. There was Kurtublu, the son of the wolf, whose father had been a famous sailor. I imagine him entertaining one of the many scantily clad foreign women attending the privateer captains. Then there was Ahmed Piri, the nephew of the Ottoman admiral of the Mediterranean. I imagine him wearing spectacles and looking over his maps. He was, at the time, busy compiling maps from India and China and Europe and the New World to create an atlas of the entire world. His atlas would be the most complete collection of world maps created in centuries, and it would be the first collection in what we might consider the modern world. And then there was his ear, with a full red beard, young, perhaps younger than the rest of them, and with dangerous eyes. He was probably wearing a linen shirt with sleeves rolled to his elbows, there would have been a leather vest, sandals, dyed woolen pants, and I imagine him sharpening his scimitar, or perhaps a dagger, and maybe reading a book. And then, in the center of the room, not tall, but remarkably broad-shouldered and sturdy, with just a hint of gray entering his red hair, in rich brocaded robes with a gleaming silver arm, was Baba Orouge. The Ottoman emissary had news for the four corsairs. The caliph of Algeria had finally relented and asked for Ottoman aid against Spain. The emissary likely wouldn't have come out and said it, but there was an insinuation here. If the caliph of the independent kingdom of Algeria had begged aid from the sultan, he would have agreed to concessions with the sultan of the Ottoman Empire. Algeria would stay nominally independent, but would become, in effect, a member state of the ever-expanding Ottoman Empire. The Sultan, Selim I, sent out the admiral and military commander Selim ed Tayoumi to be the actual power in Algeria, the power behind the throne, so to speak. The emissary sent to the corsairs had been sent from the new emir, Selim ed Tayoumi, to recruit Barbarossa and his followers to their fleet in the Ottoman attempt to end the blockade and the siege of the city of Algiers. This was a key moment in Orush's overarching plan. There was probably debate among the four privateers, probably discussion, but whether or not anyone wanted to do this, it was Orush's will, and he would have been insistent. So they sent off that emissary with promises that they would join Selim in battle against Spain in the Battle for Algiers. 
Aruj Barbarossa sailed off with the 5,000 best warriors, land-based warriors, to be found in any of the cities or lands that he commanded. He made landfall to march on Algiers in tandem with the Ottoman forces. Hizir Barbarossa and Kortuglu organized the rest of the fleet, and they took the 1,000 best corsairs they had to set sail. Three different forces moved on Algiers in tandem in 1516. There was the main Ottoman army under Selim, the elite forces under Oruj, which were expert in infiltration and capturing fortresses, and then there was the privateer navy under Hizir and Kortuglu. Details of this battle are relatively scarce, but it appears that it was quick. Apparently, the sudden appearance of an overwhelming Islamic force was enough to convince the Spaniards besieging Algiers to leave. Within a day, the single most important port in the southwestern Mediterranean now belonged to the Ottoman Empire. For about a day, maybe less. Accounts differ on what happened next, but my favorite comes from Philip Gose. He writes, quote, Aruj marched to Algiers at the head of 5,000, while his brother, the terrible Keher ed-Din, was soon to succeed and surpass him, followed with the fleet. On his arrival, Aruj, perhaps impressed with the difficulties of a divided sovereignty, strangled Selim with his own hands and became the master of the place, nominally as the vassal of the Sultan of Turkey. End quote. See, Selim, the man who was meant to rule Algiers, was a member of the Ottoman Empire, but he brought in the Barbarossas and their fleet and their forces as mercenaries. Say you were the most powerful man in the world, the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire. If you had picked a commander to lead a liberation force, and then one of the mercenaries he hired murdered him and took control of the city, well, would you accept the rule of those mercenaries, in the most important port in the entire region? The problem here comes in part from the source that I quoted. He said that they strangled Selim with their own hands, but that might be hyperbolic or even mythological. The commander might have been recalled to Istanbul, or he might have died naturally, or he might have died in the battle. However, even if what Ghost wrote was absolute truth, any pragmatic sultan would at least consider giving control of Algiers to a powerful, charismatic soldier with thousands of his own soldiers, soldiers you don't have to pay, and a fleet that you don't have to pay at his command. Selim I, the Ottoman sultan, was not tremendously pragmatic. There was a moment after the conquest of Algiers, where the Barbarossa brothers and their fleet and their soldiers were at odds with the Ottoman Empire, and it looked like the Ottoman Empire might go to war with the Barbarossas. However, Selim I didn't have long left to rule, and his son and successor, a young man named Suleiman, was noted for his political acumen and realistic worldview. The Barbarossas, in control of Algiers, were not yet Ottoman subjects, and Algiers was not yet an Ottoman territory. But in 1516, when Oruj and Hizir took the city of Algiers, there was another pragmatic ruler entering the scene. 
That year he became King Charles of Spain and was soon to be Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor. It was something of a national crisis back in Spain when they lost Algiers. It was central to the control of the North African coast, and it was going to be King Charles' first major test to see how he would deal with and hopefully destroy the Moorish pirates that had taken Algiers. Next time, we're going to look at the city of Algiers and the fleet and forces of the brothers Barbarossa when war breaks out between the Holy Roman Emperor and the Ottoman Sultan. Regarding the question that I asked at the beginning of today's episode, what is a pirate and how do the Barbarossa brothers fit in the story of piracy? To me, Oruj Barbarossa was never a pirate. He was an occasional privateer, but he was a man who had ambitions beyond the sea. His younger brother, Hazir, on the other hand, was the epitome of piracy. Plunder, pillage, attack. He loved the sea, and he spent much time on it, even though he was never regarded as a particularly good sailor. But now, they both had questions to ask. Was Arouge merely the commander of a mercenary company? Or, now that he was in command of Algiers, was he something more? Was he a ruler? His ear had equal questions to ask. Could he still be a pirate, or did he now have to become someone respectable? Next time we're going to look more deeply into those questions of conscience. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd also like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. Everyone who has become a patron on Patreon, everybody who has donated to the show, everybody who has signed up for a free trial at Audible, or everybody who has left us a review or recommended the show to your friends, I couldn't do this without all of you, so thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the absolutely fantastic band Brillig. If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so over at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch on SoundCloud, Twitter, or YouTube. As always, most importantly, thank you for listening.